بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم لك الحمد حق حمدك كما ينبغي لجلال وجهك ولعظيم سلطانك سبحانك لا نحصي ثناء عليك أنت كما أثنيت على نفسك اللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد How's everybody doing? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi ta'ala barakatuh. Good to see everybody. Welcome. I am very honored and excited to be hosting this special series in a three-part series of global conversations for Medina Institute. My name is Zainab Ansari, and I was graciously invited to be your special guest host for today for this program. So I want to begin by first and foremost welcoming our distinguished scholars we have with us today, Sheikh Mohammed Aninawi from Medina Institute and Dr. Sayyid Hussein Nasr. And my understanding is that this is really an historic opportunity and conversation that we will be facilitating inshallah ta'ala right now. All of us, of course, joining from different locations via technology. But my sincere intention in facilitating this conversation is that even though we might be in different places remotely, that the hearts of the believers are always connected. Now, you may have had a chance to log on for the previous conversations in this series. So this conversation is going to wrap up this particular uh, series of, of global conversations. And again, it is really a great honor and privilege to have with us again, Dr. Nasser and, uh, and Sheikh Ninawi. So of course, I would imagine that most of you are probably familiar with our distinguished scholars. However, I did want to make sure that I shared some information for those of you who might be logging on just recently. Um, I am just really, really pleased that scholars whose lectures we might have heard, whose books we might have read, articles we might, we might have read, that we are going to have an opportunity to actually speak to them today, inshallah ta'ala. So if I may begin with uh, Dr. Sayed Hossein Nasr of George Washington University. Dr. Nasr is University Professor of Islamic Studies at GW in Washington, D.C., and uh, after graduating from MIT, Dr. Nasr began to focus on Islamic philosophy at Harvard, where he received his doctorate. And then in 1958, Dr. Nasr returned to Iran to teach philosophy and literature at Tehran University, studying with traditional masters at that time, including Allama Sayyid Muhammad Hussein Tabatabai and other amazing scholars. He was deeply involved in Iran's intellectual and cultural development to the extent that he was the founder of its first philosophical institute and the nation's first technology university. Dr. Nasser, of course, his journey has brought him back to, fortunately for us, his journey brought him back to the United States. And in the many decades in which Dr. Nasser has been active in research, in writing and publishing, we have been blessed to receive from him over 80 books and 650 articles on Islamic science, philosophy, comparative religion, ecology, environmentalism, and spirituality. One of his most famous publications, and one that I rely on a lot in my own work, is the study of Quran, and he served as editor-in-chief. I also want to note that since 
the topic of our conversation today is philosophy and spirituality and the intersections between those two disciplines, that I want to note that Dr. Nash's interest in Sufism or spirituality has never been strictly academic. Not only does he hail from a family who that was directly connected to Sufism in Iran, he has personally been a lifelong practitioner of Tasawwuf since his 20s at both MIT and Harvard, and he continues today to be um, uh, just a mentor and a teacher for so many students and seekers of sacred knowledge. And again, we are so blessed to have Dr. Nasr here with us today. Now, Sheikh Ninawi is the founder of Medina Institute. And for those of you who are joining us in Atlanta, right, you obviously understand the significance of Medina Institute for the Atlanta Muslim community and beyond. So Sheikh Muhammad bin Yahya Ninawi is descended from the family of the Prophet وسلم, and also Dr. Nasr as well, the title Sayyid, also confers that distinction of descent from our beloved Prophet. Peace and blessings be upon him. And Sheikh Dinawi, in addition to having been the founder and director of Medina Institute based in Atlanta, Georgia, he is also the leader of um, a number of educational initiatives, seminaries, really all over the world, benefiting students of sacred knowledge in the UK, um, in other parts of Europe, um, as well as in Southeast Asia and, and South Africa. Sheikh Dinawi is a Hadith scholar, he is an author, and he focuses on usul, on aqidah, on theology, and on tasawwuf. He is also the author of a very beautiful book, The Book of Love, which I would invite everybody to look up, inshallah ta'ala. And in addition to Sheikh Dinawi's distinguished accomplishments in the field of traditional Islamic studies, he is also... Um, a physician by training. So again, I am just so excited to welcome our distinguished scholars. And I wanted to take a few minutes because I think that, you know, just in reflecting on the accomplishments of, of our alamat here, I want us to think about those people to whom Allah Ta'ala has given a lot of barakah in their time. And you are seeing living examples of that before you. All right. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So I want to go ahead and and sort of set up this conversation now. So, you know, this is for for those of us, you know, for, for those of you joining, wherever you happen to be, whether you're, you are in Atlanta, other parts of the United States, or even perhaps joining us from, from overseas, you know, all of us are really kind of experiencing, um, you know, this, this sense of trying to figure out what it actually means to practice Islam, which is so congregational in its ibadat and the way we practice our different acts of worship during a time of a global pandemic, where many of us for the first time experienced what it was like to have Ramadan um, in a certain amount of, of, of sort of seclusion, to experience Eid um, in a socially distanced way. Of course, just two days ago, we had Eid al-Adha, where some communities experimented with different formats, such as a, a drive in Eid and other ways of trying to figure out how to bring people together, but also adhere to certain guidelines. So, and one of the really interesting things about this experience is that for those of us that were, um, and this is probably most of us adhering to various stay at home orders, that for the first time we really kind of felt ourselves or, or, or experienced just having stretches of time in front of us that we had to figure out how how to how to fill. So 
given this, uh, this, this manifestation of Barakah in the time of Dr. Nasr and Sheikh Ninui, I would like to ask you both how this time of seclusion has been for you, especially kind of leading into what is normally such a congregational celebration of Eid al-Adha. So inshallah, I would like to actually begin, if I may, um, with uh, Sheikh Ninui and then Dr. Nasr. Again, what has this time of seclusion been like for you during the last few months? Thank you so much, Ustada uh, Zainab, and uh, obviously thank you so much uh, to the Honorable Professor. It's a great pleasure to be amongst you here today, and Ustada Zainab, love goes uh, to your family as well, uh, who are uh, dear to me. Your father is a hero in Atlanta, and he always spoke the truth, so... Uh, I identify with that, inshallah, Allah help us. Uh, real quick, uh, uh, obviously, uh, uh, we all are experiencing uh, difficulties, sometimes even suffering on, on different levels uh, for so many people. Obviously, as you know, Islam asks us to identify with the suffering of every living thing, uh, not just human beings. So all that is coming sort of home and has some kind of turbulent effect on all of us. At the same time, we have come to realize a deep sense of gratitude uh, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator of all, uh, to those, to the human beings who are on the fr in the front line uh, battle against this uh, pandemic, uh, to the doctors, nurses, hospital workers. It also, to be honest with you, gave us a better understanding of of identifying with the suffering of everyone. We're hearing numbers and in the media and, and the numbers are nameless and faceless, but we're trying as people of faith to identify with them. They are not faceless, they are not nameless, and we're trying to actually identify with them as such and praying for them. It has been a practice since the pandemic actually from the pulpits to pray for all those who are suffering regardless of their background, regardless who they are. And it also gave us a, a soul-searching sort of opportunity to have faith conquer fear. And that's another thing as well, because there are lots of fear. There's lots of fear that is thrown, but we're trying to conquer that with faith. Um, yeah, a lot of reflection, obviously. One more thing I want to say. We have witnessed, especially here in Atlanta, and actually also in Medina, UK, and Medina, South Africa, but especially Medina, US, uh, and Medina, UK, we have witnessed a tremendous rise in charitable acts and volunteerism within our community. I mean, massive. Uh, reaching out to the elderly, to those who need, those who don't want to go out, bringing meals, bringing stuff. So... Uh, from masks to everything, it's been it, it's been heartwarming to be honest with you. So there's always a blessing in difficulty, and we hope that difficulty will ease us. Jazakumallah khair. Thank you, Sheikh Nuri, and I really appreciate how you mentioned just the heartwarming aspects. Again, in the midst of this difficulty, there is also this ease. Dr. Nasr, I wanted to turn this question over to you. In terms of this time, um, and I, 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 and I, I do believe, based upon what, mashallah, what I, what I know about you and Sheikh Ninawi and your distinguished career, that that part of your approach to Islam really has been to kind of embrace this idea of we need to have time for a retreat 
and contemplation and seclusion. But how has this time been for you, Dr. Nastr? And has it been different the last three or four months? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. First of all, uh, I want to confirm what Dr. Nenevi said in general about the attitude towards uh, the coronavirus. As far as personally, I'm, myself, I'm concerned, there have been several major organizations that have asked me questions about this, and I carried out an interview from Jerusalem, the Jewish rabbi, which also includes Christians, and about this, and been all over the world, and uh, a lot of things I've said there, I would like to repeat here, but we don't have time. But I think from a spiritual point of view, uh, there are two very important lessons that we can draw from uh, this event. The Quran says there's no event in life from which one cannot draw a lesson. We are here in this world to learn a lesson for in everything that happens. The two great lessons, first of all, that the first one, most human beings in the West do not want to pay attention to, and even in the East and the Islamic world, namely the weakness, brittleness, uncertitude, and hubris of modern science and technology. The hubris that uh, modern science, or those who believe in it have, that uh, modern science knows everything, it's the only science of the universe and, and of nature and so forth and so on, and uh, the power of its application through technology. If one thinks seriously, one should question that. Of course, modern science has certain successes in certain domains, but this uh, idea that it sort of substitutes for the divine will in traditional civilizations and divine knowledge, I think has been shaken for anyone who is perspicacious enough to try to draw the right lessons from what has happened with the coronavirus. <coughs> the second thing, point is a positive one. Uh, the coronavirus has by force interiorized us. Modern man is identified by externalization, scatterness of the soul, always trying to find satisfaction in what is external. The internal world has been largely, not completely, largely forgotten. There's been no period of human history in which there have been as few contemplatives who have been honored and who have been known in society as in our own day and age. But there was a tendency, starting from the Second World War, of a kind of coming back to the rediscovery of spirituality as the inner life. And uh, I think the, uh, this experience of having to spend months in semi-seclusion with oneself, whether we like it or not, no matter how much we try to busy ourselves in our house with trivial matters, forces us also to confront the geography of our inner landscape and not only try to externalize because the externalization has become limited by the factors that we all know, and therefore it could have a positive effect. It could have a positive effect of take, helping us to take a step in what the Prophet said, Man He who knows his self, knows his God, uh, and perhaps to help us to know ourselves better could be a positive element. And I'm hoping that uh, once the corona crisis, inshallah, abates, that the lessons that we have learned from this will not be forgotten very soon, and we will not go back to trivial 
pursuits which are considered to be life, ordinary life. Thank you so much, Dr. Nasr. I want to, to build upon that. So, Dr. Nasr, you mentioned that one of the outcomes, and this is of actually a positive outcome of coronavirus, has been that we have forced to become, we, we've been uh, compelled to become sort of interiorized. And one of the most interesting observations from my standpoint about, say, the way that some governments are actually handling the coronavirus, it is that it's really revealed the flaws in these man-made systems. Again, there is, there's, there's, you know, there's a sense that we have often as Americans of, of sort of American exceptionalism. You know, for, uh, for many of us who have transnational immigrant backgrounds on my, on my father's side of the family, my great-grandfather immigrated from, from greater Syria there is, a, there is really this, this sort of belief um, in coming to the United States, um, a certain belief in the superiority of, 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 this, of, of the system and this idea that the United States really represented on so many levels kind of like this, the, the pinnacle of modern technological development. So my question for both, for both Dr. Nasser and Sheikh Minoui is, Given this belief that some of us possibly still hold this idea that we've reached the pinnacle of development in terms of science, economics, politics, that there's this trajectory of advancement for all of humanity. So in light of this, why do we need to have a conversation today um, of all times about philosophy, about spirituality, right? Are these artifacts of the of the past that we're basically kind of nostalgically trying to cling to or is there really a necessity to bring philosophy and spirituality and center them to bring them back to the uh, back to the fore you know some people would say that one of the interesting developments of modernity and postmodernity is that we've become maybe more tolerant maybe more progressive maybe more accepting of multiple viewpoints so i'd like to begin our conversation by posing kind of a bit of a paradox here, right? Are modernity and tradition at odds with one another, right? If so, why? And again, why do we need to center philosophy and spirituality at this time? So inshallah, I think that I would actually like to go to Dr. Nasr to kind of build on that last point that you made and then go to Sheikh Minoui. How does that sound? Uh, first of all, let me make this comment, going back to the first thing that you said. The idea that America is the pinnacle of civilization and Western civilization, the pinnacle of all uh, civilization in the world, I believe is absurd. Absolutely absurd. In fact, it's just the other way around. I consider modernism to be a catastrophe, ending an environmental crisis, psychological disorder of the human order, not to talk about the loss of faith and so forth and many other things. And in fact, I'm not the only person from the middle of the 20th century, already a number of perceptive American, European, not even talking about Muslim, uh, philosophers, sociologists, and thinkers began to realize that something is wrong in the kingdom of Denmark. I always quote this verse of Shakespeare. Not all is going right. And they began to criticize what was going on in the modern West. And it was exactly at that time that interest actually in non-Western 
ways of looking at reality, which has always been considered to be primitive stages in development of the grand uh, philosophical ideas of the West from the Renaissance onward, that uh, began to take shape. People in America and Europe began to look to Asia, to the Islamic world, to India, to the Chinese-Japanese traditions for forms of wisdom which had been lost in the West itself. And I feel, I believe that uh, going back to or trying to rediscover traditional philosophies and spirituality is not a paradox because the modern world is so perfect, so complete, so uh, this and that, that there's no need for this. It's just the reverse. Just the reverse. Until you have a toothache, you don't look for a dentist. In the 19th century, when the West was so sure of itself, of being the, uh, on the right track, of progress, of uh, all of these ideas that were going on at that time, at that time, very few people tried to go to India or to, to Istanbul to learn about Sufism or about uh, Vedanta. Uh, the fact that this happened in the 20th century is precisely because this common everyday notion that politicians keep shouting about on, on tribunes uh, is false. There are very, very profound uh, problems in modern Western society. Uh, just a question of the environment, if nothing else, if you don't delve with, seriously with it, it's going to kill us off. It's as, as simple as that. Put aside religion, mysticism, love, all of those aside, just the biology and physics of it. Uh, and uh, perhaps uh, my hope is that uh, as the Father's program itself that you started shows that this present crisis would make more people aware of the fact that looking for other worldviews was far from big escape from reality, but it was escape into reality in a certain sense, to discover the real, rather than the illusory idea of progress and advancement and so on and so on, that has swayed the Western mind since the Renaissance. Jazakumallah khair. Thank you, Dr. Nasr. Sheikh Dinawi, Dr. Nasr mentioned some very important ideas. And one of them is this idea that, you know, the, the illusory nature of, of reality. You know, one of the things about modernism and about science is that we believe that science has given us the tools to really kind of discern what is real and what is not. So, Sheikh Nidami, what would be your response to, again, given your background in, in science for that matter, what would be your response to someone that would come along and say, well, we still really feel that science, right, and reason, as opposed to, to revelation, uh, really give us insights into the sort of condition of the human being? You know, I, and I actually want to, I want to come back to what Dr. Nash said about environmentalism, inshallah, in just a moment. But I'm, I'm really interested in understanding, you know, for Muslims, this kind of tension between traditionalism and modernism. And what would your response, Shekhan, we be to someone who, who says, well, we, we still feel that there are, there are ultimate truths that, that are only going to be located, say, within the scientific method. And that's been the inheritance of modernity. Uh, well, uh, I mean, uh, as as uh, the uh, our good professor put it, uh, there is a uh, today with all the advancement in uh, the claimed advancement in science, despite the limited epistemology of science itself, 
and the claims of religiosity as well on all fronts. And I'm not talking about a specific faith system here, but uh, it seems that we still have uh, managed to fail miserably on many human fronts uh, on, on many, in many ways uh, that where the whole world is being affected by such things. I mean, we're still, until today, the world is still ravaged under war, uh, wars and violence for political and, and other purposes. And also social injustice in many, many places uh, that the latest uh, re events ha have revealed. Uh, I have to say, going back from an Islamic perspective, we as Muslims uh, have also uh, are also to blame partly uh, because of our uncritical imitation of Western thought. Now, Western thought is beautiful and has lots of things in it, but this uncritical imitation of Western thought has and, and the total alienation, obviously, of of our philosophies and our tradition has harmed Muslims and resulted in a deep sense of loss and an impoverishment, uh, impoverishment, sorry, uh, of Islamic philosophies. Uh, 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 philosophies, uh, philosophically speaking today, uh, we are actually in crisis. And uh, oftentimes we, we misunderstand the issue because we also pick up what others say. No, Islam is not the problem. We don't have an Islamic crisis per se, maybe a Muslim crisis, because the uh, issues are not really uh, caused by Islam, but by intrinsic and extrinsic forces uh, uh, there. And among them is the world susceptibility to uncritical dominant forms of Western knowledge uh, that are deeply rooted in one eth ethnocentric or one way versus the other, an imbalanced modernity, if I may say. And uh, the problem with uncritical em emulation, and Islam always tells us to avoid uncritical taqlid or uh, uh, without emulation, without understanding, that it came at a heavy price, causing not merely an alienation from our own rich philosophical tradition that the uh, professor knows well, all of you know well, but also a subsequent production of a distorted Muslim concept of the self and loss of identity entirely and a reductionist and a dwarfist, dwarfing knowledge into a set of information that we memorize. And this distortion gains more intensity when this uncritical emulation involves the recently popular illusion that uh, we are sovereign over the rest of the creation uh, or when it comes with self-righteousness absolutely uncritically. This effectively is self-deification, which is popular today, even though it may have does may not have the same label, and that gives the illusion that the professor was speaking about that uh, that people are the ultimate purpose of the of existence. Uh, this has also higher worse ramifications on the religious ones, so-called among people, because it deceptively makes them think that they are exclusively the standard of truth and the benchmark of validation. Hence, they practice or preach intellectual terrorism, exclusion, uh, anathematization of others, fellow members within the faith, on things they disagree and they forgot the basics that... Uh, uh, that this faith, uh, if you put it on that skewed modern standard, 
the human being becomes arrogant. And this pandemic came, came also among the benefits of this pandemic, which is a lot of suffering, obviously, but it challenges the arrogance of the human being. And uh, that, that where that he feels he's the master or she feels the master of all that exists. Um, so I think we have, uh, uh, it has challenged us in many ways and where the tradition actually meets uh, science in many ways. They're not necessarily entirely mutually exclusive. There are things that we can work together. We're working on different uh, uh, fronts here when it comes uh, to that. It, from a traditional perspective, everything in existence has a purpose and it's imbued with spiritual value because it was all created by the same creator in his infinite wisdom. And therefore, in, the, in, in this view, uh, due to the privileged position in creation, human beings bear the responsibility and the accountability of being self-responsible self and accountable for how they treat and utilize all that they have access to, including nature in all its forms, uh, be, the, be the human, animal, or inanimate. And, and this renders the human being here as a guardian instead of a ruler over the rest of the creation while able to enjoy nature and meet their needs and necessities. They have to be responsible, not just for protecting it to the best of their capacity, but improving status quo. And that's where Al-Quran says, fiha. He asked you to positively contribute to it because they're all gifts and loans, loans or lease from the creator that are meant to be appreciated and treated in a responsible way in accordance to the way the creator gave us in the Quran and, and in previous books, such as the book of Moses and the book of Jesus and others, alayhum salam. Thank you, Shaykh. Now, Dr. Nasrin Shaykh I also want to invite you to comment and reflect on each other's responses. So please feel free to do that. For example, if you have a follow-up question for each other, a comment on uh, perhaps what, what your colleague may have just mentioned. I actually wanted to comment on this idea of, 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 of a crisis, right? So Sheikh Ninawi, you mentioned this, that there, while there might not be a crisis um, within Islam, that, that for segments of the Muslim community, there perhaps might indeed be an experience of some sort of spiritual or existential crisis. You mentioned um, the distorted conception of self. And Dr. Nas, you, you, you mentioned very importantly that this time of, of, of seclusion has forced us to reckon with ourselves in perhaps um, ways that are unprecedented. Now, given, I think, the, just the sheer, you know, individualism that we see in society today, you know, given our propensity um, as Americans, again, I work with a lot of young people at the school where, where I teach. So, you know, one of the things that, that I find myself addressing is this idea of um, the postmodern condition really sort of makes, uh, makes the individual and sort of the whims and desires of the individual as, as, as central and removes any idea that there are universal truths and values. And I wanted to, to ask you both, again, if you please feel free to comment on, 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 on this idea of this distorted conception of self. But what is the role of revelation in all of this, right? Because we're, we're mentioning, we're, we're discussing different uh, disciplines, different fields of knowledge. We're discussing this tension between modernity and, and tradition. 
what I'd like to, 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 to discuss here is, is really what ultimately when it comes to arriving at the truth. And for those that, that, that young, especially younger Muslims who are asking this question today, I mean, years ago, I read Dr. Nasser's guide, a young Muslim's guide, a young Muslim's guide to the modern world. And um, I really benefited from it. But for a young person who's kind of coming up today in a very different world, where there really is no sort of idea uh, of, a uni of, of universal truth, what is the role of revelation in addressing this distorted sense of self and reconciling between these different approaches to knowledge and understanding the world, right? Specifically here, we have this idea sometimes that there is a separation, right, between, say, the mind and, and the body. And this is kind of an idea of Cartesian dualism. But, of course, I'm not going to attempt to do philosophy because the experts are here, mashallah. You know, the Quran, very intriguingly, challenges us to think about the relationship between the aql and the qalb. So, for example, I have a verse here uh, in chapter 12. This is verse 109, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, says, وَمَا أَرْسَلْدَ مِنْ قَبْلِكَ إِلَّا رِجَالًا نُوحِ إِلَيْهِمْ مِنْ من أهل القرى أفلم يسيروا في الأرض فينظروا كيف كان عاقبة الذين من قبلهم ولا دار الآخرة خير للذين اتقوا أفلا تعقلون right and even before I'll translate it for our audience and even before your time we we never sent as messengers any but mortal men whom we inspired from amongst the people of their very communities have then they never journeyed i.e. those who reject this message, have they never journeyed about the earth and beheld what happened in the end to those who lived before them? And to those who are conscious of God, the life in the hereafter is indeed better. Will they not then use their reason? So we have this ayah in the Quran, right? Afala ta'aqilun. But then we also have other ayat in the Quran that tells us, uh, that, 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 that tell us the significance of standing before Allah Ta'ala with a sound heart. And that, and the heart actually being the the seat of uh, of sound understanding. So for modern day Muslims who feel this sense of sort of fragmentation, they're encountering a distorted sense of self. Sheikh Ninawi, Doctor Nasr, they're in this illusory kind of world. How do we reconcile these different dimensions of the human being? How do we address the interplay of the head and the heart and philosophy and spirituality in the Islamic tradition? Dr. Nasser. I have to write a 15 volume encyclopedia to answer you. <laughs> uh, you asked so many questions, uh, about 95 questions added together. But let me first <laughs> of all begin. I disagree mm -hmm. with your understanding of Aql as being opposed to the heart in the Quran. Always when God speaks about those who do not understand, so to understand is to to be able to use one's aql. And aql in the whole of Islamic tradition must be identified not as that which identifies with reason alone. Reason only one of the functions of aql, but with the intellect, that which binds us to divine truth. The great Islamic philosophers like Suhrawardi and others have written that the very word aql, which is used in the Quran, comes originally from the name of a plant that winds itself around a tree and uh, 
toys want want to to the physical presence of the tree as symbolically that is that which uh, ties us binds us to the divine it's like the words religion in uh, come from religio religato latin which means to to bind to relate so the word aql in our tradition is not that which separates us from god it's not the mind of Bertrand russell and karl marx and even uh, hegel and kant it is really uh, sub- the intellectus of medieval European philosophy, which was very similar to our own. And it was always used in the Quran as a positive uh, faculty. Uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, the, the Quran never says that all that leads one to sue, uh, uh, to, to evil. It always uses nafs uh, and other shaitan and other words and uh, so this was a very important point to understand in Islam uh, it, the instrument that knows is the heart and not the head and you still have in English the word heart knowledge you also have it in French other uh, European languages and you have it in Arabic and al-ilbul uh, qalbi in Arabic the heart, knowledge of the heart is a central form of knowledge. So I want to make that correction. I think we're going to discuss these matters together. In fact, what has happened from the Islamic point of view, which I hope the present crisis will help to uh, point to, is, is to revive this understanding. And to revive this understanding, you need to have revelation. For us Muslims, it's very clear the revelation of the Quran Christians who've been removed from the Bible, at least Catholic Christians for a long time, and the Protestants only have had a literal understanding of the Bible, it might be more difficult, but the Bible also has verses which identifies the heart as the organ of knowledge that is the spiritual heart, not the physical flesh that's in our chest, the spiritual heart. Uh, We have to come back to the idea of revelation. Revelation comes from God and Wah, and it came to the heart of the Prophet. The Archangel washed the heart of the Prophet of his blood cloth, not his head, not his brain. Uh, is, the heart is the recipient of revelation. And then you have what's called Al-Wahy al-Juzi in Arabic, minor revelation, that we can always receive as a gift from heaven, as an intuition. It's only through revelation that we are able, in fact, to regain knowledge of the truth, to ha- have our the instrument of doing, which is al-aql and our qalb in the traditional sense become actualized rather than atrophied. All of modern civilization, practically, except for a few currents here and there, philosophically speaking, are based on the forgetting of heart knowledge. The heart no longer plays the role of knowledge. It's no longer a noetic faculty, except in some poetry, romantic English, 19th century poetry, but in the philosophies that grow in Germany, in France, and in England, and the major European countries, the Renaissance, this idea is completely forgotten. It remains in Christian mysticism, but Christian mysticism because more and more love mysticism, devoid of knowledge, and therefore it does not pose a challenge uh, even for uh, the mainstream philosophical thought, 
So we end up with Bertrand Russell's uh, book on logical mysticism, in which he tears mysticism apart. Whereas for us, of course, mysticism is part and parcel of uh, the spiritual life of Islam. And at the heart of it stands the reality of revelation, which is both objective, that is the revelation that was received by Muhammad ibn Abdullah and by the Prophet before him from heaven. And it was also inward, the inner revelation, which however is only possible to become actualized by accepting the external revelation. That is, Muslims cannot go the way of uh, modern age spirituality in the West, in which everyone really claims to be a prophet, every guru in Southern California, and uh, must accept the reality, the objectivity of the revelation, and uh, through that, to be able to actualize within themselves the possibilities which lie dormant in the hearts of most people. Thank you, Dr. Nasser. Dr. Nasser, you spoke of the idea of, of uh, the impact of modern civilization on what you termed as the atrophying of the, of the human heart. I'd like to invite Sheikh Nunawi to comment on that, this idea of the atrophying of the human heart, what Dr. Nasser said about heart knowledge and how that has been really sort of lost from this vast corpus of Western philosophical thought. I want to focus more on that point, if, I, if we can, Sheikh Nui. So revelation, when we talk about revelation and the role of revelation, balancing between reason and revelation, right? And seeking to address how distorted the conception of self has become for modern day human beings, how fragmented we are. Again, Dr. Nash mentioned I was putting too many questions in there. So let me boil this down. Again, focusing on this idea of the interplay between the, the heart and the head and how Islam uh, addresses the whole human being. Let's talk about more about this idea of heart knowledge and its, and its relationship to revelation, please. Yeah, if I may borrow the uh, good professor's uh, terms, atrophy versus actualized, I think, for the heart. I think Islam puts it squarely at, as uh, the heart is the beginning of all knowledge, true knowledge. And that's why if, you're, if you recall the hadith of Ziyad bin Labid in Sahih bin Hibban, which is an authentic hadith where the Prophet ﷺ looked at the sky and said, this is a time, this is a time where knowledge is elevated. And the companion Labid is it's almost like scratching his head and saying, what do you mean, O Prophet of Allah? We have memorized the Quran and we have, we're teaching it to, to our children and all. And uh, the Prophet ﷺ responded by saying, O Labid, I used to hold you as one of the most intellectuals in Medina. How do you answer such a question? It's never about information in the mind, but it's the realization of the heart basically is what the hadith is telling us, even though these exact words were not there. But the continuation of the hadith was when the Sahaba said, should I tell you what the first knowledge that will be elevated? And they said, yes. He said, al-khushu'. Al-khushu'a means being present in the heart. So that's the first knowledge elevated. So the heart is, as if the hadith is telling us, the heart is no longer present. And therefore, today we have ritualized our faith and we've made it the, the, the benchmark of being religious, but we are no longer present 
in our rituals. The heart is no longer present. So due to the enablement, let me go to rhetoric a little bit here, Kalam, due to the enablement of choice or taklif that we have, unlike any other thing in the creation, human beings have managed to separate their heads from their heart and disconnect them. And that's why we may experiencing, experience them as being in conflict with one another rather than synchronized with one another. And therefore, even though love and wisdom seem to be two separate things in the human being, but they're essentially the same. And this is what philosophy is, right? It's the seeking wisdom, but not just seeking it, living it. And uh, the direct relation rests in the fact that the quality of our love in the heart determines the quality of our wisdom in the mind. And the quality of our wisdom in the mind uh, is determined by the quality of our love in the heart. And therefore, if I just may finish with this, today's um, uh, 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 essential uh, problem uh, in the world that we have uh, today, the essential bankruptcy in modernity stems from two things. Number one, obviously alienating the heart entirely. Number two, reducing facts to the epistemology of physics rather than the possibility and the potential of the vastness of the mind and the logical possibilities as well. And that's an ontological gap when they try to talk about the existence of God. Uh, physics doesn't prove, therefore he, doesn't, he does not exist. And so the reason for that, it stems from the severance between the human beings and the creator of all, God, that gave them their existence and their existential purpose. The creator, God, which gives and takes life that existed without a beginning long before human beings and will exist without an end long after human beings are gone and all the creation will be held justly accountable. A human being with this worldview is at peace with self and others and lives in the world with humility and harmony because now there's a synchronization between knowledge of the mind and the potentials, the potentialities of the mind and knowledge of the heart. Jazakallah khair, Sheikh Ninawi. Dr. Nasser, would you like to comment on anything that Sheikh Ninawi said? Just let me know, inshallah. Uh, no, no, I think uh, he explained it very well. Uh, I would perhaps be even more critical than Sheikh Ninawi of as far as the modern understanding even of mental knowledge is concerned. Uh, because uh, modern understanding of mental knowledge itself really cuts the roots of knowledge from the intellect in which it is located, from the noose ultimately, from divine knowledge. We cannot know anything without God being Al-Alim. If God were not Al-Alim, the knower, we would know nothing. And the relationship between our knowledge, the epistemology to which the Sheikh referred, and uh, the metaphysics of the divine names and the qualities of God is a very, very central one which is now totally forgotten, and therefore much more critical of the modern world's understanding of epistemology uh, than perhaps, at least as from the comments I've heard from Sheikh Nanavi today, is being kind to them, is the Sheikh dominated by love and is letting his love for everything perhaps uh, make him a bit overkind to those who, who should be criticized very severely for eclipsing truth which is so central, the, the truth, cannot, uh, love cannot be real without the truth, of course. So uh, anyway, 
I'm in accord with what you said. I think it's quite right and it's very important for us to realize the primacy of heart knowledge and to remember that the heart is the seat of the intellect and the mind is a reflection of the aql, of the intellect in its original sense, in the medieval sense or Greek uh, ancient sense, uh, comes from, actually, Latin sense comes from the ancient world and revived in the medieval period. Anyway, uh, we have to understand that uh, the for us as human beings to function in a normal society, we must bring back the privacy of knowledge of the heart and to understand the knowledge of the mind as an extension of the intellect whose seat is the heart and is not the brain. The brain has analytical functions which only are true provided the roots are preserved vis-a-vis the heart. And the severing of this bond between the head and the heart, you might say, which sometimes we use in everyday parlance, but it philosophically is one of the severest and most important uh, errors, of course, of the world in which we live, of the modern world. Jazakumullah khair. This is so enlightening. Thank you, Dr. Nasr and Sheikh Nidhi. I do have a follow-up question. You know, we've again, we've talked about this human being that really is just sort of fractured. And this, again, this idea of severing that connection between the head and the heart to the detriment of the human being. I also wanted to bring in a question here, and this is a question about um, the role of revelation in reconciling between the head and the heart of the human being and enabling that human being to understand and comprehend the world around him or her. Specifically, my question is, a lot of us are struggling spiritually maybe struggling in terms of our iman, struggling to reconcile between our understanding of Allah Ta'ala's knowledge and, and mercy and beautiful attributes, but also looking at the world around us where we've been impacted again by a global pandemic, where tens of millions of people in this country, for example, are out of work, where the global death toll sadly uh, is rising where the impact of our luxurious lifestyles in the West, in the Northern Hemisphere, is felt most strongly on people in other parts of the world. And for those people who would, young people, for example, right? Or maybe people of of all ages who are struggling with this idea that, yes, intellectually, I understand that Allah Ta'ala decrees certain things, but in my heart, how do I grapple with what's happening in today's world? How do I, the individual believer, confront this problem of suffering? So, Dr. Nasr, how would you respond to that? Uh, this is, of course, one of the central questions which has destroyed religion in the West. Many people have left religion because they could not find a satisfactory answer of why could, should or could a good God create a world in which there is evil. Not one person among one billion Hindus has ever left Hinduism because of that. No Muslim has left Islam. No confusion has left Confucianism. But how many millions of Christians, especially thinkers, uh, philosophers, have left the religion because of this one single question? And this was a very important question. 
And the answer to it is that in order to understand it, we have to understand traditional philosophy. We have to put aside this flat, one-level, horizontal understanding of reality, which really much of modern Western philosophy is based on. Reality consists of levels of, of being. God, which in uh, classical Western thought was called Esse, uh, pure being, by Sir Thomas Aquinas and others, Al-Wujud, Al-Mutlaq uh, in Arabic. Uh, God is the absolute, the infinite, the perfect, the perfect good. There is no evil in God. Evil is separation from God. But in order for God to remain faithful to one of his own names, which is Khaliq, a creator, he has to create. And creation implies separation. Separation implies dilution of the reality of the source. And it's the separation from the source that uh, we extract as evil. Evil is a privation of good, as Dante said, the great poet, and many, uh, St. Thomas and others, and we have it, of course, in our Islamic sources, many people have written about that. To expect that since God is all-powerful, why doesn't he create a world which is perfect, in which there is no evil, is really an absurdity. Because if, if the world were perfect in every way, it would be God. What would be the difference between the world and God? To create means to emanate, to separate, to, to distance, to remove, like you as an artist may create something, or I as a writer may create an essay which comes out of my mind, out of my being, but there it is, it comes outside of me. So uh, the question of evil, why there is evil, became insoluble in the West, once the metaphysical understanding of God ceased to be central. Once you had the God of Cartesian dualism, 17th century rationalism, the consequence of it was the loss in the possibility of explaining why a good God could create evil, a world in which there was evil, but would appear to us as evil. Whereas, for example, in Islam, in Islam. Jalaluddin Rumi already has written there's no evil. They explain it metaphysically that evil exists only as privation, as separation from God. And once that separation is removed through spiritual practice, there's no evil. Evil has no ontological reality of its own. It is a privation. And we have vast, vast explanations of the metaphysical understanding of evil in our tradition. And that is why I, as a Persian, I know a lot of Persians who've left religion for other reasons, for worldliness, for the, because of material things in the West, they fell in love with a woman in London, all of those things. I do not know a single Iranian, single Persian, who ever left Islam because of the argument which exists among so many Westerners as to if God exists and is good, why is there evil in the world? Now, when it comes to practical matters, because you, you alluded to your question to practical matters, how does one live? If you accept and understand that, 
you will understand without any sentimentality that to live in the world is to live in this world, is to live in a world in which all is not perfect, which is separated from God. And therefore, there is in it what we call evil. And you are not going to be eradicate, able to eradicate all of evil in the world. One of the greatest mistakes of modern man is the shimmera, the daydreaming, that he can remove evil at its roots. That's why it removes one small evil falls into a greater evil. You uh, stop the spread of cholera, you end up with coronavirus. You decrease the use of swords, you end up with the atomic bomb, and so on and so on. Uh, the, the world about us shows that. But what one can do, and the duty of every Muslim, especially a spiritual person, is first of all, try to eradicate evil within oneself. That we can do. That we have an excuse for not doing. That God expects of us. God does not expect you and I to cure cholera in northern India if it's spread, God forbid, there. It's out of our hand. We can pray for them. Yes, it's spiritual. We should pray for all creatures. But we do have both responsibility and control over ourselves. And then to try to eradicate evil as much as possible in the immediate world around us. To be good, to do good, to tell the truth, to help. All of these positive qualities which we can display. But we cannot display to the whole world. Even with this gadget you put in front of me, uh, which can go to Australia, it's not going to include the whole world. Uh, uh, God has allowed us to have certain contacts with certain circles, to be born in certain places, to be brought up in certain families. And within that context, there's always the possibility of being able to be good inwardly and to do good in the immediate ambience around us. If you understand that, therefore, if people die, God forbid, of hunger as they're doing in Yemen right now, you won't turn against God and say, how could a good God allow the people of Yemen to die? You'll try to see all the very complex conditions leading to civil war, the Nasserian invasion of Yemen, uh, uh, the fight between the Zaydis and the Shafis, and so on and so on. I don't want to go over contemporary Islamic history. Saudi uh, invasion of uh, Yemen that has led to this famine and this terrible situation that you see now. But uh, no Yemeni, even in the middle of that famine, is going to stop saying his prayers and mm -hmm. say, oh God, how could a God, good God create uh, this evil? This is a disease of modernism because of the lack of understanding of traditional doctrines, which so fully explained in Islam, in Hinduism, in other traditions, and also in medieval Christian thought, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, others have some of the deepest discussions of the question of evil. Uh, on a religious level, solved somewhat differently from Islam, but intellectually very, very similar. Jazakumullah khair, mashallah. That was beautiful, Dr. Nasr. I would love to go on listening to you so much longer, but I want to invite Chef Nawid. Yes, of course. I talk too much. I'm sorry. No, no, Dr. Nasser, that's a question that was dear to my heart, and I was so happy I was able to get that question in. So, Chef Nui, Dr. Nasser, mashallah, addressed this question from the metaphysical and also the practical. 
the problem of the existence of suffering and evil. So, Sheikh Minoui, what would you say, for example, to a young person who comes along and says, you know what, I studied in Sunday school, my teachers told me that Allah Ta'ala has these beautiful attributes and He's merciful and He's just, so why isn't my world perfect? What would you say to that person, Sheikh Minoui? I think it's impo very important to echo what uh, Professor Nasser mentioned, to be honest with you. Let me address it from a Kalami perspective real quick. First of all, uh, the enablement of choice, taklif, or as people would like to call it, the freedom of choice. And uh, this enablement of choice, let's say from an Ash'ari or Maturidi perspective versus a Mu'tazili perspective, which are all really the difference is semantic here especially with the Maturidis, is basically between absolute free will and independence of God entirely, or predestinarianism. And that enablement of will obviously permits uh, things to happen, whether good or bad. As the Quran mentioned. But our universal order is the sine qua non, if you are to say, the essential element of a moral world it is a solid foundation upon which moral achievement can be built. If our world were a chaos rather than cosmos, and if we never knew within reasonable limit what was going to happen, our lives would be a nightmare. Uh, not merely because it would be unpleasant, but because it could be meaningless, morally speaking. And moreover, if there, are, if there were no known order in the world, reason could not develop in the human being for the human being's reason it develops in response to uh, the reason or order that is in our universe again without this order science could not be possible for science is simply the discovery of order and it's setting forth in terms of what we call natural laws or the order of this creation and finally uh, it, it is the presence of such order that God created, while it may permit certain evil to happen, at the same time makes possible their overcoming. MashaAllah. MashaAllah. Again, there's just so much to reflect upon here. Thank you so much, Sheikh Nui and Dr. Nasr. Inshallah, this time what I'm going to do is I want to invite our audience to submit questions. Alhamdulillah, there that some questions have been sent, sent in. And of course, uh, I want these questions to relate to the larger theme here of the connection between philosophy and spirituality, and also what we've learned from our distinguished scholars here in terms of one of the sort of the, the inheritance of modernity has been this, this human being that is, again, distorted, that is sort of fragmented, and how in a return to revelation that we seek, right, to be able to reconcile these sort of... Uh, impulses in the human being to arrive, inshallah ta'ala, an understanding of truth, of ultimate truth. Now, a question has come in from an audience member, and this question is kind of taking us back to this idea of why we need this revival today. And the, our, our esteemed audience member asked, what can we do to save ourselves from the fitna of, of modernity? Right. So and I'm, I'm thinking that th that our audience member probably wants some practical advice here. Again, the question is, what can we do to save ourselves from the fitna of modernity? All right. So, Dr. Nasr, what would you say to this audience member? First of all, for almost a century now, uh, some very leading 
uh, intellectual figures in the West who know modernity well have been writing in-depth criticisms of modernity from every aspect, uh, intellectual, artistic, social, and so forth. Going back to Rodé Guénon, Kumar Swami, Shuan, the traditionalist writers, and uh, during the last few decades, there have been a lot of writings also in other languages, including the Islamic world. And I myself have written a few books on this matter. There's the intellectual uh, presentation of why the falsehood of modernity. Then you have parallel with that. A uh, number of books that appear are people like Ivan Illich, E.F. Schumacher, people like that, who Western, uh, very profound critics of what's going on in the Western world, who've written very important books, very widely read, uh, like uh, God for the Perplexed of Schumacher, uh, and of course the books of Ivan Illich are very famous, which criticize modernism uh, in depth, that, because these people know the modern world very well. And a Muslim who wants to, to have more familiarity and also become intellectually, uh, you might say, prepared confront the challenge of modernity, she or he does not have to start from zero. There are already very, very good books, uh, such as these that I mentioned, and a little bit of work in the library will reveal others. I don't have time to go over the whole bibliography right now, which deal with this. My book, Knowledge on the Sacred, has a lot of references uh, to works of this kind, and that person who asked the question in order to facilitate her work or his work, I don't know who that person is, may uh, consult with some of the footnotes there, but there are also other references. Thank you, Dr. Nasser. I appreciate um, those recommendations for reading suggestions. So Dr. Nasser recommended several works critiquing um, modernism, modernity. Um, I also want to, uh, Dr. Nasser, I'm not sure if this was the book that you were recommending that we take a look at also one of your books. By the Church of the Sacred. Yes. Part of this book deals very much with this issue, yes. Okay, perfect. All right, so audience members, in search of the sacred here, and this is a conversation with Dr. Nasr. Sheikh Ninoui, thank you, Dr. Nasr, I really appreciate it. Sheikh Ninoui, what would you say to this audience member who's asking, who's asking, how can we kind of secure ourselves against the fitna of modernity? Any spiritual practices, for example, that you'd recommend? Well, it requires a type of rationality and subjectivity that transcends our modern instrumentalism and materialism. It necessitates a, a, a I don't like to call revolution. Uh, I like to call thawra. I, I have a negative thing with thawra for some reason. I like to say nahda or renaissance. So it requires a, a spiritual revolution, if you were to say, which is ethical at core. It carefully prioritizes specific characteristics that function as an antidote to the malaise of modernity. Uh, it, 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 they, they, these, these characteristics that we must harbor and build and maintain uh, are crucial because each perform an essential function and, and in their totality produce a different human being uh, uh, than, than what we're having sometimes here. Uh, these characteristics come from uh, a deliberate implementation of a specific set that the Quran and the Sunnah gave us uh, to form that self. It consists of serial, uh, series of practical acts uh, meant to train and perfect itself, indispensable to produce desired characteristics. Otherwise, it'll become talk. You see, the human being who 
in, in other words, what I'm trying to say here, the only way out of our enlightened, disastrous modernity, modernity is to form, uh, uh, to bring up the human being whose inclination is intrinsically spiritual and ethical, and then outwardly fully human. If I may give you one example, for example, Haya, uh, which is translated as shyness. This cannot be translated as a single word that we just take in Sunday school. But it is rather an outlook or a series of interrelated characteristics that inform and perform uh, uh, people's behavior in the world. Having haya requires being morally and spiritually alive. Haya is modesty, humility, gratitude, sincere shyness from bad conduct based on the love of God and shamefacedness before him rather than absolute, be absolutely being frightened by him. That love of God and shamefacedness before him or fear of losing his love completely permeates the human being's consciousness uh, and, and affect and regulate how this human being relates to and behave towards everything that exists. And therefore, uh, let, me just, let, let me just leave it. Mashallah, again, I, I, I wish we could uh, increase this time and just, I, I could just listen all day absorbing, mashallah, all this amazing um, insight. Now, I have a question that's come in, Sheikh uh, Nubi and Dr. Nasr, and this question is building on this idea, because Sheikh Nubi, you mentioned that you like the idea of the Nahda or the Renaissance or renewal, say, as opposed to revolution. Uh, the question is, as Muslims work towards renewal and revival, and this is for, for both of you, how can we strengthen intellectual pluralism and methodology so we can reignite our, our rigor? Um, and I would say really vigor and, and, and potential, right? Because we've talked about this idea of um, the atrophying of the heart, right? And perhaps an accompanying loss, I think, of, of vigor and energy and understanding. So again, the question is, how can we strengthen as a community intellectual pluralism, and methodologies? How can we reignite our potential? So Dr. Das, how would you respond to our audience member? Uh, all right, first of all, these things do not occur as community. They occur through individual, intellectual, spiritual leaders who then affect the community. We've never had in the history of thought any major philosophical, intellectual, ethical idea created by community together. It's always created by individuals within a community, and then those in the community who follow that and uh, attain the goal. Now, uh, if we understand that, uh, the important thing for us is to, first of all, be true to ourselves more than anything else. Uh, there was one point in your question that I did not quite grasp. Could you repeat the last part of the question? Absolutely. So, the, so the, the last part of the question is how can we reignite our vigor and our potential? I see. Yeah. Now, uh, to reignite our vigor and our potential should not depend on the whole community. It should come from within ourselves. The community can always help as an external support. But uh, the elan, the uh, sort of impetus at the beginning should come from within ourselves and our relationships with God. So what we should do is try to revive ourselves inwardly, to say our prayers regularly, 
to be virtuous, to be ethical, to do the commands of Islam. And that will also create relationship with members of the community or like-minded like us, not all of them maybe. And the community itself can therefore in turn be a kind of support for us as we can be for the community. But I believe it's that between individual and society, spiritual uh, transformation begins really with the individual. Even when prophets come, the Prophet he began by, first of all, having Khadija, Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Ali, and so forth, the closest to him, they embraced Islam. He himself was transformed by Gabriel. That formed the earliest nuclear of the community. And then it was individual transformation that gradually created the community. Once the community grew, then the community could itself attract other people from other places where the uh, Prophet was in Medina. That's always a good lesson for all of us to follow in life. So my advice is always to start with yourself, with all the instructions that Islam has made available, spiritually, ethically, intellectually. And we have to revive our whole tradition. Islam is not only a one-layer tradition. It's a vast tree with many branches. Not all branches for everyone, but everyone has a particular way of understanding things which correspond to one of those branches. Got all different schools of thought, of theology, of philosophy, of Sufism, of fiqh, uh, of usul uh, al-fiqh, uh, and so forth and so on that we have in Islam. All of these are there, and to try to remain traditional, my insistence is that we, in order for us to revive ourselves, we have to revive the tradition. We cannot do it by ourselves. We cannot do it with God's help. And tradition is there as God's gift to us. It's there, but uh, God has left us free to make use of it or not. As I want to conclude this discussion by emphasizing something very important we haven't spoken about during this discourse. And that is that uh, oftentimes Muslims talk about free will and determinism, that Islam believes in free will and not, and Asharism says no, and uh, uh, theology may say yes and so forth. It's not debated Sunnis and Shiites, philosophers and but the uh, All of those put aside. Put aside. Uh, from a spiritual point of view, uh, there is no way to approach God except to love Him. And uh, the fear of God about which the Quran speaks is a fear that does not turn one against the love of God, but turns love towards the love of God. I quote this so often, Ghazali, the famous Ghazali says, the difference between God and the creature, that when you're afraid of a creature, you run away from him. When you're afraid of God, you run towards him. So this is a, a love that also includes fear in the positive sense, uh, and also a warak, of a citizen, and also opens up towards marifa, towards knowledge. And we have to respect that whole vast traditional issues from this and draw from it what is our need. Parts of it are determined by God. We cannot decide how many rakas are prayers to say that God has decided that for us. We cannot decide on the halal and haram. He has decided for us. But it's left a vast field free, intellectual, emotional, having to do with knowledge, with love, with career, with attraction, 
relation with other human beings, with nature, animals, and so on and so on. We do we have tremendous amount of freedom, but it should always be in accord with our attachment to tradition, to the basic teachings of the revelation which God has sent to us, and then use one of the keys which has given to us to open other doors. The modern world is a very difficult place because there are so many temptations, so many false doors, so many traps, so many possibilities of perdition and going there on the wrong track and breaking one's neck. You lived in the medieval world. The possibility of error, of course, are always there. There were people who sinned, sinned at the beginning with Adam. But the uh, uh, possibility of coming back to revelation, to religion, was always much stronger than it is today. Today, it's like a person on a trapeze who falls down without a net to support him underneath and breaks his neck. Whereas the old days was always a safety net. So the Muslims should take full advantage of the tradition which God has provided for us and all the multifarious levels of his application and his understanding. Jazakallah khair, Dr. Nasser, I really appreciate your very comprehensive response. And I want to highlight one thing for our audience member. This is something so beautiful um, that I want to actually begin to sort of convey to my children, right? Because for, again, I, I, teaching a younger audience, we very much instill this idea of fearing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But how beautiful is this, that it is the fear of Allah ta'ala that makes us run towards him and love him. Thank you so much, Dr. Nasser. I really appreciate that. Sheikh Ninawi, I'm actually going to send another question, and this is a different question in your direction, if I may. So we have um, a question from another audience member, and they're asking about how the modern condition uh, seems to attempt to um, deny the reality of death. And there is, a, and the question goes on to tell us or to ask um, that, that uh, Imam Ali عنه, often reminded early Muslims about their mortality. Is the, and here's the question, is the remembrance of death an important or useful thing for us to reflect on philosophically and spiritually? And if so, how should we do this and why? And if I just may add to the Sheikh Ninawi, um, I read an article probably last year or so in the Atlantic magazine where they addressed specifically how there are wealthy people who are trying to gain access to various technologies in the belief that they will be able to artificially prolong human life and gain immortality. It was mind-boggling that somebody could, could believe that, but there are people who really do believe that they can acquire some type of immortality in this world. So, Sheikh Ninubi, what would we say to our, our audience member here in terms of the usefulness of reflecting on death? And how do we do that as Muslims? Yeah, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, real quick, if you uh, permit me, um, the, just to say three things about the uh, renaissance of, of, of the community of the Ummah uh, first. <laughs> I think it's imperative in this time uh, of, like the professor said, there are prophets in every uh, neighborhood today and all that. Uh, for us Muslims, it's very important uh, for, especially for the speakers, the religious thinkers, the scholars, the activists, the students, even, you know, the, the people who are interested, to really prioritize two concepts that we have in Islam. One is mutawatir and one is muhkam, both of them. The muhkam mutawatir as a foundation. Muhkam mutawatir means the texts that have been definitively transmitted to us. 
definitive attestation means which means now texts that have definitive indication now when we have text when we make the foundation of our faith only mutawatir texts that are definitively existent and those texts that have only one possible interpretation they're muhkam this becomes the basics of all of our agreement and this becomes this is the beauty where everyone is within the house of islam with la ilaha illallah muhammadan rasulullah you see based on this foundation that is muhkam and mutawatir we then invite and cultivate a clash of mind culture rather than the clash of hearts and with that i don't mean that we need to disregard speculative evidence no but we need to understand that we cannot hold them as benchmarks or as priorities that makes us who we are but not as a basic foundation and the third thing is also the fact that unity should never mean conformity based yes. on the muhkam and mutashabih. Um, with that, the issue of, of death is an issue of reality, obviously, uh, the Prophet ﷺ told us about that, uh, mentioning it. The reason for mentioning it from an Islamic philosophical point of view, maybe at least one dimension of it, is the remembrance that we're accountable. The so so that that illusion that we're we can get away with doing evil and zulm and fasad is actually an illusion because otherwise that 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 thinking that if we get away with things just because we get away with them thinking that we're getting away with them that actually it, it actually encroaches in the very faith and belief in God who is just so the remembrance of death serves it's actually not an interruption of life as much it's actually a phase of life death is and for those who love god since when death means an end to anything if any it's the beginning of a better life but for us that we are under an illusionary life that we can get away with doing evil and lies and deception and zulm and murder and violence well guess what there there is a day of accountability Alhamdulillah, this has been truly enlightening and it really has, I think, made me understand, I think, the importance of even while we are, you know, at home behind our computer screens, dealing with, again, some of those mundane concerns that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, that it really does begin with us as the individual believer to locate those sources of growth, of renaissance and renewal, to renew our relationship with Allah subhanahu ta'ala, to embrace uh, taqwa of Allah subhanahu ta'ala as a path of loving Allah ta'ala. Um, and I think to really make sure that we are turning a very clear and sort of critical lens on modernity and the impact of modernity not just on the us as a Muslim community or even society at large, but on the faith and the frame that I think the, the intellectual framework of the individual believer, I have learned so much from this conversation. I would like to uh, conclude, inshallah ta'ala, by coming back to uh, something that I read. This is actually in Dr. Nash's book. And I was looking at one of Dr. Nash's books and he mentions the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as Al-Insan Al-Kamil, right? Which is 
the human being or the perfect is translated as the perfect man par excellence, the beloved of God, the Habib of Allah, and this excellent model. And we know that the Prophet ﷺ was sent as a mercy for all the worlds. I also have in front of me a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ reminded us about divine mercy. That Allah has divided mercy into 100 parts and he kept 99 portions with him and sent down the one portion to the earth. So, inshallah, before we go into our concluding dua, if I might invite you very briefly, Dr. Nasr and Sheikh Dinawi, to help our audience understand something of the portion of God's mercy that was sent down to the earth and how it connects to the Prophet as the Prophet of mercy. Very briefly, Dr. Nasr. First of all, uh who am I to talk about the Prophet? I always feel very humbled more than even talk about God when I try to say something about the Prophet, when I've written about him, it's been the most difficult things I've written. But uh, through a lifetime of studying, trying to pray, having been present in my prayer, having visited his tomb, I'm one of the very few people in the world who was able to go inside the tomb of the Prophet and touch his tombstone actually on the trip 1968 when I went to Arabia and King Faisal was there and we were able to get inside. Uh, anyway, uh, it's very f difficult for me to speak because most of us do not understand the grandeur of the Prophet, how difficult it is to embrace and comprehend his grandeur because to comprehend is to encircle. We cannot, our arms are not long enough to encircle his reality, and uh, so whatever one says of him, the tongue remains al-kanad, you say in Arabic, uh, cannot become eloquent in describing it. But let me just say that uh, the Prophet represents perfect receptivity towards God. Perfect receptivity towards God, combined with ultimate love, perfect activity towards the world. And the key for our love of God and God's love of us, love of us. we oftentimes uh, bother Muslims, especially some of the Salafis and so on, forget the role of the Prophet in the love of God. Whereas in fact, uh, it's very simple to understand that in order for us or us to love God, God must love us. And God does not love a person who does not love his prophet. Because God loves his prophet. So the prophet plays an incredible role as role model, as the model of the perfect human state, as the actualization of the virtues, as the holder of the supreme knowledge of la ilaha illallah, and also as the lover and beloved of God. And his title, Habibullah, the Babul Fa'il in Arabic, is both active and passive. It's both the lover of God and the beloved of God. And it says, all love in the cosmos for us Muslims. 
among us as human beings, between us and the world of nature, and above all, between us and the spiritual world leading to God, is related to the love between God and his prophet. That's all I have to say today. Thank you, Dr. Nasr. I know there was some hope that you would maybe quote some poetry, but <laughs> alhamdulillah, we're going to go to our da'a, unless you want to share a couple of po a couple of poetry with us. Or we'll very quickly, I'll, uh, just you ask me, uh, I'll end with the beginning of the Mastavi, uh, the Preludium, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Bishnazney, Shun Hekayat Mikunat. از جدایی ها شکایت می کند از نیستان چون مرا ببریده اند مرد و زن از ناله هم ببریده اند سینه خواهم شرح شرح از فراق تا بگویم دوست درد اشتیاق هر کسی که دور ماند از اصل خیش باز جوید روزگار وست خیش شاد باشه اخش پر صدای ما ای دوای نخوت و ناموفت ما ای طبیب جمله لطای ما ای تو افلاتون و جال نوس ما That's from the beginning of the master. Thank you so much, Dr. Nasr. I really appreciate you. So, inshallah, hopefully, uh, an encouragement to all of our audience members, the importance of actually being able to read that poetry in its original language. That is just a blessing to hear that. Thank you, Dr. Nas. We really appreciate you. Jazakumullah khair. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and protect you and give you health and prosperity and longevity and happiness. And we're just so delighted to have you here. Jazakumullah khair. Thank you very much. And my salams to our beloved Sheikh in every inshallah. We shall meet again and to Osala Zainab and all the responsible for this program. I pray that Allah Ta'ala will recompense you for all your efforts and that this program will have done some help at least to let not only Muslim but others realize what it means to be human. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you. Thank you so much for your dua. Sheikh Ninawi, inshallah for our audience members. So very quickly, inshallah, if you can tell us in this day and age, how that one part of mercy that Allah Ta'ala sent down to the world, how, how can we look at that to help us live beautifully? And then inshallah, if you could make a, a, a khatim, a closing supplication. Thank you so much. Allah bless you, uh, you know. Uh, you know, the end of the story is like uh, Maulana said in the Masnawi in that sense. I think the Prophet ﷺ gives us the opportunity uh, on our level to connect with us and connect us. And in this sense, we are ever grateful and we are, we hope to be grateful and, and ask Allah to show us to be more, to show us ways to be more grateful and more loving and to channel that mercy and love that he gave us. And I think that it's been well said by the professor. I don't need to say anymore. Thank you, Shafiq. Bless us with the dua so we can close out the gathering. And thank you so much to you and all of the Medina Institute team for sponsoring this wonderful event. 
Thank you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa alihi wa sahbihi wa nuala. Allahumma khair wa rahma wa ta'atafu wa tikarram. Allahumma a'inna. Allahumma jma'na ala ma yurdiq. Jannibna ma'asik wa ja'alna minal mutahabbina fiik. Bless everyone, ya Allah, who gathered here, came, supported, said, intended to learn, intended to teach. Grant your mercy to all suffering in this world today. Guide us all. Bless us all. And uh, uh, show us uh, in uh, more and more and more your love and mercy towards us in special ways. Wassallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa alihi wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin. Thank you so much, Ustad. Thank you, Shaniwali. Allah Taala preserve you and your family and all of our dear teachers and scholars. We are so indebted to you. Barakallahu fiqum. Jazakumullah khair. Salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi taala wa barakatuh. And to our audience, thank you so much. You've been wonderful. May Allah Taala bless and protect all of you. And belated Eid Mubarak. Thank you for joining us. And take care. Salamu alaykum.